2024 is the year of podcasts, and we want to let you know about a brand new show that is live right now. Join with me to share the good news about the Worthy of Everything podcast. It's just one of the two hosts, Jaja Lasso. Jaja, you've been working on this podcast in the background. Our team has been very excited as we've been preparing for its launch. How does it feel to know that the episodes finally are out there and we're moving forward every single week? It is so exciting and I am just excited to see where God takes it and I have so much hope that it is going to be an incredible blessing to the listeners. Amen, amen. But as I understand it, this is a show tackling the issues of mental health through the lens of the gospel. Can you share just a little bit more about the heart and the intent and who you're really trying to serve through the Worthy of Everything podcast? So I personally was freed from depression and as I've come to understand my freedom from sin and identity in Christ, I start to recognize all these amazing gifts that God has given us. So yeah, just exploring and hearing awesome testimonies about how to walk out true intimacy with a loving father who pursues his kids. Oh man, sounds like a good time. If you want to check out the show, lovereality.org slash podcasts and look for the Worthy of Everything show. The world doesn't think that the gospel can change your life, but we know that it can. And that's why we want you to hear these stories, stories of transformation, stories of freedom, people getting free from sin and healed from sin because of Jesus. This is Death to Life. My frustration, my dissatisfaction opened the door of my heart and mind for this sense that I needed something to make me feel affirmed. And Satan is great at presenting opportunities, and he did. The relief I felt was a spiritual relief that I couldn't even describe or uh, I couldn't quantify at that point because we didn't know what freedom in Christ was or looked like. I just knew that the exposures gave me a sense of relief. Yo, welcome to the Death to Life podcast. My name is Richard Young, and today's guest is Wayne Morrison. And I have known Pastor Wayne for many years, uh, but I got to know him and his family better when his son Tyler, from season one, episode one, came to Union, and I've got to know him even <laughs> better in the last three or four years uh, because of what has happened in our lives and the gospel that has changed it. And you're going to, this story is, is, is wild, it's different, it's powerful, and I'm not going to step on it. We're going to let Pastor Wayne tell it. So uh, let's buckle up, strap in. Love y'all, appreciate y'all. Listen to this story. Uh, this is Wayne Morrison. Hear ye him. Man, this is real talk. God is loving on me. Colorful and innocent, that's on me. Got me standing in the light. And so, have you? You've heard quite a few of the episodes of, of the, the Death of Life podcast, I imagine. You have almost all of your family on an episode. <laughs> I would like to say I've heard most of them, but the truth is, I probably have heard a third of them. There's a lot of them. They they come out every week, so and. Uh, <laughs> You know, you usually where we start, and you're going to have to tell me where to start on this one, uh, is where at some point there's like this understanding of 
spirituality or or God in your life. And I know probably more than some, not as much as many others about your upbringing and your your uh, your growing up. I know that when I met Tyler, almost immediately when I met Tyler, he was really sad because his his grandfather had just passed, and I think that's mm. your pop. And he was a this uh, this amazing preacher. Um, tell me about your background growing up and your introduction to spiritual things. Yeah, I was. Uh... I am a third-generation Adventist. My grandparents, my mother's parents, were baptized after an evangelistic series in Brainerd. Uh, and then um, my grandma on my, my dad's side, she actually was baptized at the age of 16 and told that she couldn't come home if she was going to be baptized. And then by 18, she was married to my grandfather. So. Um, I, I was born and raised in an Adventist home, in an Adventist community. John and Floor were at our house this, or at our church this last weekend. Uh-huh. And in their story, they talked about being raised in Adventist bubbles. And we sort of think that that's the mega centers, right? You, sure. It's a college town, small town, and it's all Adventist. And uh, I lived in a small town in, in northern Minnesota. But we lived in an Adventist bubble, even though we were a smaller church and we we were by far not the majority in our community. We still had created a very safe environment for raising Adventist children. And I was blessed because it was an incredible community. They really were. That doesn't mean that we didn't live by the same uh, rules mm-hmm. that Adventists sort of had. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I did know what love was. I, I, didn't, I didn't suffer in relationships because the people around me didn't love. I just accepted the, the rules and the, the way we do things, um, but knew that I was loved and accepted. I've been, I lived in affirmation. I really did. In fact, that probably was the problem for me is that I had too much affirmation. Ooh. I want to hear about that, but... At this last weekend, I was down at uh, Southern, and I drove on to campus, and it was close to sundown, and they've got the post office, they've got all, they've got this little strip mall, and it was completely empty, and there's only a few places on planet Earth, well, not on planet Earth, in North America, that you drive around, and there's just, on a Friday afternoon, it's completely empty. It was like Loma Linda, Berrien Springs, Southern, and it's just, like, it gave me a good feeling. I'm like, yes. A day is dying, you know, like the the Sabbath is here, and so your community, your this one that you grew up in, similar, you know, there's a lot of Adventists. Um, what did that mean for the culture? Like we talk about Adventism as like what it means in by the letter of the law, and then we talk. There's this whole other thing called cultural Adventism, where you know we eat certain things and we talk a certain way, and what what was the culture of of this community that you grew up in? So part of it, I think, is different for me than a lot of, a lot of your guests, and that's because I'm so old. But I want to hear about it, man. You're not old. <laughs> you have to understand that when, when I was a little kid, veggie meats were just coming onto the scene. In fact, I can remember the first time 
I got a veggie hot dog and uh, I took a big bite and I thought, what in the world is this? <laughs> it was very strange. So um, while we, we knew that we needed to quote unquote be good huh. and Sabbath was a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, we watched the edges of the Sabbath. We were, we were careful about those things. I would just say that the culture probably was different, mostly different than, than it is now. In the late 60s, early 70s, um, we were, I'm not even sure how to say it. I, I guess I just can say that it was a very positive environment for me. The rules, you know, the Sabbath thing mm-hmm. is the best one for me to use. We knew that you couldn't do, you didn't go swimming on Sabbath. You didn't ride bicycles on Sabbath. You didn't. There was just rules and they didn't necessarily make sense to me. And so as a kid, I would be like, well, we're going to go ride bike and hopefully nobody really (laughs) finds out. And then, you know, you have that accident, you fall down, you rip your pants and, and the, the saying is just automatic. You know, that wouldn't have happened if you weren't riding your bike on Sabbath. And I'm like, that's true. (laughs) I have to say it was an awesome environment. It was very positive. I remember as a junior, um, now I think it's more common, but back then I remember my dad and one of the other men in church became the junior leaders in Sabbath school. Uh-huh. And it was the first time I'd ever been to Sabbath school where there were men leading out instead of women. Hmm. And it was, it was obviously it stuck with me. It was a positive experience. We, we felt loved, accepted. We felt led by really good men. I, I just, it wasn't a big church. It was a small church, but the families were very positive. In fact, I grew up thinking that all of the church, they were all my uncles. Hmm. I just, I honestly thought they were family and it was kind of disappointing to find out they weren't actual blood. We just, we were close, very close. I love that. I, I'm, I love history. And as I'm thinking of the last, you know, 180 years, and we're thinking like, why has this, why have things happened the way they have happened? And I'm, I've been in Adventist education my whole life. And you think about Adventist education and you think they come home from the war and everyone has a bunch of kids and you're a part of that. You're still probably on the, the last end of the baby boom. Um, I don't, so you're the last end of the baby boom, but the fabric of American morals, everything was about working hard. We're back. The war is over and and it was all good. And there's all these babies and so a lot of the reason why Adventism was probably the way it was was just natural and and um but of course the enemy comes in to use all of these things but there's all these kids and at this point I'm imagining and I've heard about this time in Adventist academy history where the academies were bursting at the seams because of all of these babies and you know when I've worked at several academies and you're like I can't believe there would there would be three hundred kids at the, on this campus, or there would. Um, but this was uh, you're growing up, correct? Like you went, there was a bunch of Adventist kids, and you go to an Adventist academy. You went to Maplewood Academy. That's where I I worked for a while, and uh, it was bursting at the seams. Tell me about that experience, but also that there's this heavy kind of rule based. Um, like we're very careful sidewalks type stuff. Uh, tell me about growing up in that environment and what it did 
to you when it came to rules? So the, the academy, you're right. When I was at Maplewood, it was during the years that they had the most students they'd ever had. <clears throat> we had 75 or 80 kids in our class. Mm. And I think today, There's less uh, they don't have a whole lot more enrollment than that. Yeah. So um, it was, and for me, the academy was, it was like the highlight of my life, at least to that point. It was incredible. I loved it. Uh, my dad had, had become a pastor about three years before that. And we were living way north of Minnesota at that point. He was pastoring International Falls and, and Williams and Bedette. And um, those are all right on the Canadian border. Hmm. You could throw a stone across the river. And, Hit a mountain. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I went, to, I went to Maplewood and uh, everything I wanted, because there was, there was one year that I went to public school and it was hard because I couldn't be involved in all the things I wanted to be involved in because they happened on the weekends. Uh-huh. They happened on Friday night or, or Sabbath. And so I remember my mom dropping me off at the academy my freshman year. And she said, one of the things she said as she was saying goodbye was, well, now you can be involved in anything you want. Everything's, everything's open. Hmm. And I felt like that. I did. I wanted to be a part of everything that was happening on campus. It was fun to be, I'm kind of social, so it was fun to be around that many kids. Just have activities, literally, from the time you get up until you go to bed. And the academy experience was awesome. I never thought much about the rules, except that there was this overall um, concept that we're in prison. And many of the kids, and I picked up the the lingo, but many of us just use this. In fact, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but you can take, you know how there's a screen on the window and then there's sliding windows on the dorms? Oh, yeah. You can space those just right so that the dividers of the windows make it look like there's bars on the windows. <laughs> and we had done that in the guy's dorm and then taken a picture from the outside and it looked like all the windows had bars on them. Um. But our joke was, or our rhetoric was, that we had to live in this prison with all of these rules. And I understand for some kids, it was pretty restrictive. Because I came from probably a a little more conservative or guarded home, Mm -hmm. uh, I found a ton of freedom at the academy. Uh, and, And it wasn't like I was busting out for my mom and dad's rules. It was that there was just a ton to do, and I got to do it. And it was a great experience for me, but there was a concept that you had to sneak. And I think this is probably the most detrimental to me personally, uh was that if you wanted to go downtown or we had a a corner store, I don't think it was there when you were there, but uh, we had Northside store was about four blocks from the school. You had to sneak out of the dorm to go there at night to pick up a bag of chips or whatever you wanted and sneak back. And so it, it, it developed in this, this concept, except for town day, we had to sneak if we wanted to go down to the Dairy Queen and get an ice cream cone or whatever it was, there was a lot of sneaking. The same entered into relationships. It's like you have to hide the fact that you're dating. It's just everything, became, everything that was wrong, quote unquote, had to be done under the table, so to speak. So 
that can't help but make God seem a certain way. Because this is a school that represents God, but it also has these rules. And the rules are good, but the rules aren't God, but we live by the rules. And I'm just saying this because I've worked at an Adventist academy. And when someone gets kicked out or when someone gets reprimanded, it almost feels like my worst fear is like they're thinking that God is kicking, that they're getting kicked out of God. Like getting kicked out of an academy is just like, yeah, God's done with you too. Or like, because this is an institution that represents God in many ways. Um, How did God correlate with all of this? Like, this is an institution that's telling me that I got to do this, this, and this, and I got to dress this way. And if I want to talk to a girl, I got to sneak. And I, who was God then to you? And what did he represent? And was it the same thing or was it different? Yeah, I would say, um, first, I would say that I probably didn't, didn't correlate that picture at that time. Hmm. But what did happen was I assimilated a, a perspective that I think most of Christianity has assimilated, and that is that that you know you're going to do things that are bad or wrong, and God is displeased. And so then you have to uh, beg for forgiveness and make amends with God so that he'll accept you back. And if you get caught, in one of the big ones, then this this concept, like you said, of getting kicked out, it's like God draws a line, and there there is a point where you've gone too far, and you're you're just whacked. And so, and it's it's interesting because as, even as I say that, I think, well, wait a minute, it's not that God had cut me off, but it's that it's that we're not going to give you another chance. Hmm. And that can't be, because in my mind, in my heart, the things I was taught about God, that didn't align itself. Um, and so there would be conflict then in my, in my own heart, there would be conflict because God never says you've done too much or gone too far. I was shown a very loving God, even though we had rules, I knew what love and acceptance was. Because remember, I, I told you earlier, I lived in a community where I received a lot of affirmation. Um, even from my own family, my aunts and uncles, my grandparents, I received a ton of affirmation. I just, I, I never, I've never known what it meant to not be loved. So, and, and I'm looking, you know, I'm looking at this through the perspective of how do we do better? (laughs) Because when you're working in an institution like that, and you do know, hopefully you know that God is love, and you know that God will never cast you out. Jesus says, I will never cast you out. But then you're also, like, trying to run this institution, and you can't, like, let, you know, and we hate to talk about it like this, but, like, one bad apple spoil the barrel, or, like, you don't. And so you have to make these decisions, and you're like, man, this is so, so difficult, Um and you get it wrong sometimes, and people are hurt, and people leave. And I just remember my first year working in the, in the dorm, we had to let a kid go. We gave him a bunch of chances, and we let him go. 
And many of his classmates have never heard from him again. Like he's on the internet somewhere, but he just, he just was gone. Like that was his moment of going to church. That was his moment of hearing about spiritual things. And that breaks my heart now as I think about it. Did you experience that? Did, did you have classmates that just became bitter towards not just the institution, institution, but towards God because of stuff that had happened that, you know, they're kids and they're immature? Many, many, many. In fact, I would say there's a large, larger percentage of my classmates who walked away than those that stayed. And I'm just talking about not the church. I'm just talking about a relationship with Christ. And I think um, it's easy to say that in the institutions, there's, there's something wrong. But you know, having worked there, and you've been at, at least three different mm-hmm. times, you've been working at Adventist schools. It's really hard. <laughs> it's really, really hard. Crazy hard. Because you do have to have some form of, of guidelines, and yet you want kids to know the grace of Christ. You want them to know that they're loved and accepted. And, and the phrase you used, I don't know that you... You meant to, but you said you had to let him go. And I think, I honestly believe that's the heart of God. God never will leave us, but sometimes he has to let us go because we've chosen. The, the two things about God that, that have stuck with me forever, number one is I'm loved unconditionally. And I, it was easy for me to accept that because I felt that unconditional love in my family and in my church growing up. Mm. But the second is that I have, I have absolute freedom of choice. God will let me go. He doesn't want me to leave. He's not kicking me out, but he'll let me go if I choose to go. And so this whole concept of being able to share with, with teenagers, and we know that over 80% of the kids who make decisions for Christ make them between, what, 12 and 18? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the bulk of academy use. And the, the messages that they need to hear, I think, are that they are absolutely unconditionally loved and that God always wants them. Are they free to make any decision they want to make? Absolutely are free to make whatever decision they want to make. But no matter what decision they make, God still loves them and still wants them. Hmm. And, and then the hard part is how that plays out for us. I was, yeah. Well, yeah, what you're hard. describing is the wrath of God, and how it's described in Romans 1 is that the wrath of God is that God will let you do your thing. Like, he knows that what you're doing, your your, your relationship is with death, and your fault, like your participation in sin is just this relationship with death, but he, he won't control you in a way to stop you. He will let you, um, and that's sad—I mean, it obviously breaks his heart, but— the wrath of God is not sending a lightning bolt or giving you boils or something. It's him letting you play yourself, really. And um, because that's who he is. He's, he, of course, keeps chasing after you. He never casts you out. And then as you leave, he's the shepherd searching for the, nine, the one from the 99. He's looking for the lost coin or he's waiting for his children to, to come home. But so as, as you... Uh, 
tell me about the hilarity that ensued in your life and in your heart as you're going through this. Um, I hear stories. I hear you were you were the jock. You were the Maplewoods jock. You were you were the the big man on campus. Uh, as you're navigating your young life, um, God is this thing to you. How is it changing? And how? Like, tell me the story. So let's dispel the jock thing right away. That's not the truth. But I love sports. I, I mean, sports was a big deal to me. Uh-huh. Um, played basketball, football, softball. Um, and you know what that's like at the academy. That's life yeah. for those who like to play. Uh, but probably the, the, the thing that drove me the most during that time was the need for affirmation, which is really interesting to me when I think about it now, because I had affirmation. I've, I've told you several times already in the, in the story today yeah. that I received affirmation. I felt love. But I think that, that affirmation, that, that acceptance, that love, just created a desire for more. I, I could not stand it if someone didn't like me. I remember a time in a church when I was a pastor, that I did something that really offended one of my church members. And they just said, you know, you, you just will never be a pastor to me because of this offense. And I looked at him and I said, look, I don't know how long it'll take, but I'm going to win you back. Huh. And it took like three years, but we did. We, we won. <laughs> we won. I say both of us did because we were reconciled. Uh-huh. And, and I was their pastor again, and, and we could enjoy each other's company again. But uh-huh. that drive for affirmation or acceptance kind of drove me through academy. I wanted to be everyone's friend. And it was years later at one of our class gatherings that somebody actually said they didn't know which group I actually hung out with because it seemed like I just hung out with everybody. and that spoke to me that I had been somewhat successful. I wanted to be friendly, be friends with everyone. But that also became the double-edged sword mm. because when it, when it comes to dating, then I need to win. And I cannot accept rejection. Um, I, I, I don't know if I asked more than two girls out where you actually say, would you go out with me? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I couldn't, I couldn't risk them saying no. And mm-hmm. so rather than asking, I would just hang out with them until we had hung out so much that we just kept hanging out throughout the weekend and became a date basically. But I, I couldn't literally say to somebody, would you go out with me Saturday night? Or would you go to the, whatever program on Saturday night, because what if they said no? And it, it kind of colored the whole, my whole dating experience, because while I would be drawn to any one girl and work through my process, Hmm. once I felt like we were there, it was, it was interesting because I would kind of lose interest. And that's, it's not like I'm, you know, the wanted guy on campus. That was not the case. But once I got to that point Mm -hmm. where I felt like 
we were good, mm-hmm. I the interest died off really quick, except with one, and that one I've still got today. All right, I've been thinking about this, and you're going to have to be patient with me because I Go think this it. makes sense. Um, spoiler alert: your son is episode one of the Death Alive podcast. Is Tyler Tyler Morrison? And as you're speaking and, and telling your story, it's almost a mirror image of of his story in this way. Tyler is super affirmed, grew up completely knowing completely that he's loved. And I'm hearing that from you. As I think about my background, I knew I was completely loved, but like I've never heard you um, like in your coaching or in... You're, you're, you're always positive. It's always good. And, and it's rarely have I ever heard anything negative. It's all good. And I think that's amazing. When I grew up, my parents loved me. But if I did something, they would say, well, son, that's great. But you need to do this next time. You, like, you said too many ums in your prayer or you did it and they would coach me. And I remember distinctly uh, when Tyler and I were doing like ministry together, he would come down and I would coach him. And one day he would be, he got really mad at me. And he was like, Richard, why are you doing this? And I, in my mind, I was like, well, I don't know any other way. Like, but he wasn't used to someone, and, and it, I didn't want to be negative, but I don't know just the way I was. And I'm not saying this is good, but I'm saying all of this to say this that the enemy lies to us, and we can have parents that pour out love pour out love. My parents, your parents, Tyler, you just pour out love, but the enemy's still going to lie. And the enemy's still going to make you feel less than. And sometimes when parents have kids that go off, they take it so personally and they say, I, maybe I didn't do this right. And maybe I didn't do this right. And maybe, and I'm sitting here and I can't think about, you know, I've had mistakes in my life. I can't blame my parents for any of it. I'm not sure uh, you could sit here and and blame your parents. And I'm not sure, and I don't think Tyler could blame you. Um, But the enemy will just go for it. Do do you agree with what what I'm saying here? I do 100%. I I don't think Tyler would ever blame me for what he experienced or the, the ill preparation. And when I use that term, you know that I'm blaming myself. If, if, as a parent, if, if I could have given them the, the perfect picture of God, they would feel affirmed, but they would also know God in a way that they could be protected mm-hmm. more from the enemy. Mm-hmm. Now, I know, I know I'm free. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to live under the condemnation that sure. I've wounded my kids. and. For years, if anyone would ever affirm Michelle and I for the kids that we had, and we are, we're parents. We're very proud of our kids. But if if anyone would affirm them, I would say my standard line was, I did everything I could do to screw them up, but God saved them anyway. And Michelle didn't like me saying that because it sounded like I did it on purpose. I tried to make them bad. And that wasn't what I meant. But in my, in my fallen state, my, my misperceptions, 
I did a lot of things that should have caused them incredible damage. And if we had time today to tell all the stories, I can I can point to things I literally have done mm-hmm. that caused incredible pain to my kids. And I just praise God that they forgive yeah. me and that they're that he's got them. Yeah. I mean, like you said, there's there's podcasts here where people can listen to my kids' story. Yes. Those are my kids. Yes, I screwed them up. Yes. <laughs> but my point is, in many ways, you could you showed unconditional love. Like, and there's this amazing story in Lauren's podcast where she thinks you're gonna be mad at her, and you're not, and you just show her love. And the point is the enemy does just the enemy doesn't need bad parents. He'll put in I mean, he'll use it, of course he will. Um, but the, you are an amazing parent, and don't don't say, "Oh, I try." No, like God is guiding and leading, and yet the enemy still came for you while you're in academy, and still said you need to get this affirmation by any means necessary. Um, if anybody rejects you, it says that you're less than. If someone doesn't want to be your friend, it takes away from you, and so now you're operating from I gotta have this affirmation. Yep. And so how yeah, how did that manifest so, in your life? Yeah, let's let's jump into that, get it out in the open so then we can talk about the really good yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Because God God has been so amazing in our lives and the testimony of our lives is the way he saves, the way he loves, and it, it is unconditional. And his grace never ends. So the this whole thing about affirmation and, and the way it affected my uh, dating or courtships, um, I probably, just to, to begin to plant the, the negative concepts that I accepted. When I, was, when I was 12 years old, I was invited to work at camp, which is probably, you know, the youngest <laughs> employee they've had at camp. And it's probably a, a good thing they don't do that. But uh, when, I, when I went to camp, I was only there for four or six weeks. It wasn't very long. But when I was, when I was there, I, I was in a cabin with a couple older guys. And it was during that time at camp that I was introduced to sexuality, mm-hmm. in essence. Mm-hmm. And um, they began to talk at night about Sure. All kinds of things that guys talk about. And and so, I mean, I was totally naive. I had no concept. I, I just didn't know. I I realized today, actually, a few weeks ago, as I was thinking about before we went to Hawaii and we were going to be telling our story there, I was thinking about this and how it how so messed up it was. Mercy. And how broken the guys I was sharing a cabin with were. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they're messed up. They, mm-hmm. and they didn't know. And that's kind of how Satan operates. Mercy. He operates through the naive, right? Mm-hmm. And so introduced to uh, sexuality, introduced to uh, concepts that create within me uh, thoughts of lust. And, and then, uh, masturbation begins and, and enters in. And, and so all of the, all of the things that we know about the, the sexual 
uh, imprisonments mm-hmm. begin in that in those moments. And so you've got your mind working overtime. You begin to see um, women in a different way, mm-hmm. and you're, you're starting. You have sexual experiences, and all of a sudden, everything starts to go into overdrive. And we know twelve years old is the time when everything's kicking into overdrive anyway. And then uh, two years later, I find myself, or maybe it was only a year later, I find myself at the academy and we start dating. And I've got this affirmation thing going on while the hormones are raging and all this other stuff. And in the dorm, there's, there's stuff floating around. You know, you can, you can find back then we didn't have cell phones. So, and there was no computers. Praise the Lord. I'm old. I'm just saying. I'm old. Um, but there's books and magazines floating around the, the dorm, and so there's, there's access. For sure. And those, those dark things, just like everybody else, I, I think, just like everyone else, those things are coloring my dating experience. And then I'm listening as a freshman. I'm listening to the seniors. The senior guys talk about their dates and what what's going on and you know this whole concept of don't kiss and tell is obviously not true in the dorm and, and guys are talking about their conquests and it's just fodder for thought and uh, it, it gets dark and so my what I told you earlier about my dating experience experiences was really true until I I met Michelle and Michelle was was different and maybe Maybe different, well, because God planted her in my heart early. Mm -hmm. She was 14. I was 15 when we first started to date. And uh, there just was never anyone else that that measured up. And and maybe it's because she played hard to get, Mm -hmm. sort of. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her story sounds different, and and it's okay because perspective is what it's about today, and Mm -hmm. it's mine Mm -hmm. this time. Yeah, right? right. Uh, but my perspective was that she would she would date me, I would win her affirmation, then she would break up with me, and I would need to win her back. And then we would be fine, and then we weren't. And then we were, and then we weren't. And ultimately, when, when we graduated, when she graduated, went to college, she was down at Southern, and I was at Union, so we were a long ways apart, and she was dating someone else. And I remember I was at Union one night, and... I'm trying to remember how we ended up making the phone call, but I think I called her for something. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyways, we ended up talking all night long. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember coming out of the phone booth in the guy's dorm at Union. There was these old booths you could go into. Mm -hmm. I remember coming out of the phone booth in the morning and the guy on duty at the desk didn't know I was in there. And he was like, how long have you been in there? (laughs) Uh, All night. But that was kind of the the point where I felt like the ice was broken and we're finally going to get this worked out. Mm. And it wasn't long after that that I went home. I kind of quit school and went home and started working. And by Christmas, I think it was, that following year, we, are, we had our wedding, uh, December 21st. And so in that, just... The reason I'm sharing that with you is uh, the ultimate for me then would be that Michelle would say yes. Mm-hmm. She would, when I asked her to marry me, she would say yes. And I thought that'll solve everything. And so we're married. 
We have our honeymoon. Life is good. We're at Southern. She's still in school. She graduates from from nursing, and we move to uh, Iowa. And we have a I have a get rich scheme <laughs> that my brother and I are going to do, and life just sort of takes off. But around all this life is this sense that I have the ultimate affirmation. Michelle has said yes, and then I'm not a great husband. I'm not meeting her needs. I'm not living up to the expectations that she had. And she's, she begins to share her disappointment with me. And I begin to, to feel this sense that, uh-oh, I'm not getting the affirmation. And so I, I begin to try harder. And the this whole love language thing really fed into it because Michelle's was like, quality time. Mm-hmm. And mine was uh, acts of service. So here's, here's the deal. I'm going to work and work harder to prove to her that I love her. Hmm. And when I go to work to work harder and prove that I love her, I'm not there for her. And so now the quality time is being cut back. And she's saying, you're not loving me, not loving me, not loving me. And I'm saying, I'm doing everything I can do to love you. Until there was literally moments where I was working 24 hours a day. I would work a day, a night, and a day, and then go home and sleep, and then work another day, night, and day. Not, not just to prove that I loved her, but because our business was failing and I was trying to, to make it succeed, and, and we were just struggling. But the, the echoing message in my head was that I'm not good enough. I'm not winning affirmation so and that opened a door let me ask you this go ahead was it almost from the beginning of your marriage that this kind of thing was happening like from the sound of it you guys dated on and off in academy and you really like there was this chemistry you really liked each other but there was like times that you weren't getting along and then you get married and it's similar to that that there's you didn't like the marriage didn't solve that problem of getting right. along and not getting along and and searching for affirmation she plays hard to get it is it kind of just goes right into marriage yeah when you talk to michelle she will tell you one of the reasons that she broke up with me as we were dating was because she didn't see me as a spiritual person and her mindset for her home was the book Adventist Home. I mean, she, Michelle's, she studies, she reads, she's, and she's amazing. So she had the right picture. Um, I don't necessarily agree with her assessment of my spirituality because I loved God and I was seeking after him. Were there issues that kept me from being? Yes, there were. But um, I was too fun loving. I didn't pay enough attention in class. I wasn't, but ultimately, Michelle, what I can remember are many moments when Michelle and I would spend hours talking about personal issues Uh and and the way that God feeds into that. Now, my conversations then were way different than our conversations now, because we have a whole different picture or perspective of God Uh than we had back then, you know, um, well, but Michelle was sorry. I got to hear Michelle about this. Hungry for tell me, tell me about this because when you were describing the whole camp to academy thing, 
the only thing I can picture in my mind is this this loss of innocence, same as the garden. Like this this young man who was innocent, sweet, wanted to go to camp, and then his innocence is stripped away. And that's why as parents and as a church and as a school, like we need to guard innocence and we try to guard innocence as much as we can. And when it when it starts getting stripped away, it breaks our heart to see our children learn things that, oh, I didn't know the world worked this way. And so I see that happen. And then there's this, this life in academy where you may be experiencing doing things you don't want to do and you don't know how to get out from under it. And you're you're fighting these battles, but maybe it's just yourself or maybe you're believing this stuff, how did that make you think about God? Like, who was God to you during this time of innocence being stripped away, learning what the world is actually like, and then this relationship? You know, while you're, while you're describing that and asking that question, one of the things that, that's going through my mind is that we try to guard, we create bubbles for a purpose. And that's, that's well intended. We create bubbles because we have Adventist education because we don't want our kids exposed, quote unquote, to the world. And yet, if you heard it, I got exposed at an Adventist summer camp. <laughs> I got exposed at an Adventist academy. Yeah. I mean, if I had been kept home, I would have never been exposed at the academy, right? right? That doesn't mean I wouldn't have been exposed. and so. So a conversation I had with Lauren just a few weeks ago regarding these issues, and, and I won't go into the whole story. All I'll say is the, the bottom line for us, and I loved her insight in this, but the bottom line was, parents, if you really want to protect your kids, start talking to them about this yeah. stuff. Don't expect that they're not hearing it. I mean, don't be naive about what they're hearing or seeing. I mean, you bought your kids a phone. Your kids have access. It's there. Yeah. And they're friends. If your kids don't know and they hear it first from you, praise God. Oh, praise the Lord. You didn't, you didn't destroy them. You're protecting them because they're going to hear it somewhere. They're going to experience it someplace. And we just, we absolutely have to have those conversations. If, if I could go back and do something over with my kids, I would be more intentional about forewarning them about the things coming. Check this out. Adventism, and I don't want to, I know we're, we're supposed to be doing more about the story, but watch oh, this. It's all good. <laughs> I love it. Theologically, we have this eschatology that says, we know through prophecy what's going to happen, and we need to warn the world. Yeah. True? 100%. And so we, we do the, uh, Revelation 12, Revelation 13, Revelation 18, and we're warning the world, right? We got the three angels' message. We're making sure that they know it's going to get dark and that there's attacks and they're going to attack Sabbath and they're going to attack our faith and they're going to attack and we won't be able to buy or sell, right? Uh-huh. We want to warn them so they're ready. And yet with our kids and the attacks of the enemy, we don't want to we don't want to damage them by speaking about what's going to happen and so we let them learn from the world and they become damaged because they learned it in the dark and if you remember um, I mentioned that earlier that I think the greatest damage that was done is that these things were counted as dark and so they're secrets you keep you don't tell your parents so I didn't go home to my parents after my camp experience and say 
You won't believe what I learned at camp. <laughs> no, sir. I knew it was dark. It happened in the dark. It happened in the secret. And I kept it in the dark and I kept it in the secret. For me, shame will the do that. power of shame will do that. But the power of the podcast, the power of these podcasts, Death to Life, is that when the lie is exposed, when light is shined in the darkness, when the lies that we think we're keeping are exposed, freedom comes. Praise the Lord. God can heal. And, and the perspective for me with God, I don't think ever got super dark. Hmm. I believe God loved me. I, I believed I was displeasing him. But somehow in my mind, the, dark, the, the keeping the secret worked because as, it doesn't make any sense. But as much as I could keep it secret from my parents or secret from my wife, secret from my kids, secret from my friends, as much as I could keep it secret, somehow I also thought I was keeping it secret from God. And yet I knew there's nothing secret from God. I mean, it, it's a strange concept, but it, it seemed to work as long as I wasn't exposed. And the truth was, I, I believe that if we keep, keep it secret from the people around us, then we deal with God in the, in the darkness, Mercy. and we don't let him have his way. When it comes into the light, it was the greatest, um, I want to be careful, I don't always use superlatives, but one of the greatest moments of freedom in my life was the day that Michelle said to me, are you having an affair? Hmm. Is there something going on? And it was like two, two emotions that I felt at the same time. One was this gigantic feeling of relief because finally it's out. Finally, light has come to the secret that I'm keeping. And the second was this absolute fear that my life was over. My life, meaning my children and my wife, I was going to lose them all. And I just praise God for the incredible grace that he had filled Michelle with and the, the, the way he had prepared her yeah. for that moment. And, you know, depending on who's telling the story and, and what time frame we're in, um, It'll sound different, but in my heart, I believe with all my heart, God prepared her for what I needed so that we could be one. And if if I had, if my secrets had been revealed earlier, I know Satan was, I know he wanted to destroy our family. And I just praise God that, you know, we're 41 years into marriage. and we got six kids and seven grandkids and praise the Lord. God is powerful. And as I hear you say that, I, you know, I'm, I'm turning 39 this week. And at this point, I know a lot of friends of mine that have gotten married and then divorced uh, with young families. And I know a lot of friends who have been, you know, had affairs and the ones who God was still in their life during this affair is it's got to be a million times worse than, <laughs> than not having God in your life at all, because it's just this 
way, this double-minded way that they're living that is just like killing them because they know better, but they can't do better in their mind. And I remember another friend who told me this exact thing, that when his affair was found out, um, his he could find, and this isn't Eddie, this is a different friend, that he could finally live again because his body was falling apart his life was falling apart him and both him and his affair partner were completely miserable and then when finally when the spouse found out like she found out by looking on a phone or something they were free to stop the thing finally and <laughs> it's so many people think that when you live double minded and you live a crazy licentious life that that you got away with it. And I'm like, if, if you get to your deathbed and you finally accept Christ, then you lived both ways. You lived this fun life. And then, and then on your deathbed, then you actually get, and I'm like, are, do you listen to these stories? Like sin is death. Like people actually in an affair, when it gets busted, even though their marriage might fall apart, they're like, praise God that I'm out of this thing. And so when I hear you say that, yeah, 100%, like dealing with death isn't, it's not what people think it is. It's not having your cake and eating it too. But you jumped a little bit, but let's get back to where, how this leads up to this thing. You didn't believe you were a bad husband while you were a bad husband, did you? No, I would say that. I would say, well, I guess I'm just a bad husband and then storm out of the house. Mm -hmm. But because I was getting that message. Right. That's not necessarily what she was saying, but that's what I was hearing. Right. And it wasn't a lie. I wasn't a good husband. Um, in terms of the picture that Michelle had of what life would look like after we got married, it didn't look anything like she had planned. And let me just, everyone that just got mad at me, hang on. <laughs> the same was true for me. The picture that I had had about what marriage would look like after wasn't looking the same at that point for me either. And Christopher was born very soon. I mean, um, we were married in December of 80, and he was born in in May of 82. So, you know, a year and a half, basically, and and we had a child in our our home. And uh, uh, we were parents, uh, very young parents, 19 and 20, when we had Christopher. how, how How old were you when you got married? Oh, wait, 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 wait. Sorry. Good catch. Good. Still, it's incredible. We were, we were 19 and 20 when we got married. Oh, mercy. So we were, uh, I think Michelle was, uh, she was 21. I was almost 22 when Chris that's was still, born. That's so still young, man. It's, it's young. Yeah. We were very young parents. All three of our kids, the first three were born very early and we we actually had a plan for being, you know, we'd be at the academy, our kids would be graduating, going to college, and we'd be young. And, you know, we'd have lots of life left because we didn't have any before they were born. You know, it was, we, we dove right in. Anyways, we were both frustrated because it didn't look the way we wanted it to look. And, and what that did was it just, it just opened the door. And, and I want to just say, I opened the door. Yeah. My frustration, my dissatisfaction opened the door of my heart and mind 
to for this sense that I needed something to make me feel affirmed. Mm-hmm. And Satan is really great at presenting opportunities. And he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, Michelle and I were just talking about it uh, two weeks ago while we were in Hawaii. She was asking me some questions about how that even got started. You know, where, where, how did you connect? How did that relationship begin? And I, I can't remember, mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, I wish I could because I think if she's asking the question, it, it would be good for Michelle to know the answer. And I, I just can't remember. Which, for people who say it'll never go away, it will always be there. It'll always be between us. It can never be healed. It's a lie. It's a lie. Because Michelle and I, at this point, we have to go back and kind of dredge it up because it's Praise gone. It's, it's not part of our lives today. It's not something. I will say in the last 30 years-ish, 25 to 30 years, I can't remember a time ever that Michelle is ever in an argument or in a fight when she's really feeling wounded. She yells at me, well, you mm-hmm. cheated or you did such and such. She never throws it in my face. Praise the Lord. I can't say that didn't happen in the first year or two after we reconciled, mm-hmm. but um, it's gone. It's gone from her heart. She doesn't go there. That doesn't mean she doesn't get mad at me, but not for that. And she doesn't throw that in my face. It doesn't mean that she shouldn't be mad at me. Um, but well, the uh, simple answer to it just goes away. There is, there is healing. The simple answer to how these things happen is when you have a heart that's still lawless, like you understand certain things, but you your heart is it doesn't have the righteousness that the law requires. These little things come to land, and it just starts as friendship. And in the front of your mind, you would never. But there's something back there that says, oh, I enjoy when this person treats me like I believe I should be treated. And if you keep going with that lie, there's the the idea that I'll never. It's like the first person who took a sip of alcohol wasn't like, I'm going to become an alcoholic and ruin my family and die of liver failure at a year early age. No, you're just like, this tastes good. This feels good. And so in the same way, these things start by very innocent, very innocently, but there's something back there saying, this feels good. And then you go for it again because you just like to feel good. Is that like your experience? Like, oh, this feels good. Yeah. Um, except it it would feel good in the buildup, the the discovery of relationship, mm-hmm. and then and then all of a sudden it's like, Ugh, oh, of course, that's awful. How could I do one hundred percent? And I think any anyone who struggles with a an addictive type sin, you know, not the one you fall into, but the one you find yourself choosing yeah. over and over. Um, there's that, and I always liken it to, or the way I describe it is that Satan is the the great tempter, but he's also the one who throws us under the bus. So he's the one who says, oh, it's, it's, isn't it awesome? Doesn't it feel great? 
don't you feel better than you felt before? Isn't this meeting a need that you have? And then as soon as you follow through and he's got you. The accuser of the brethren comes out. (laughs) Yeah. See, I told you you'd never be any good. God will never take you back. You know, there's there's no good in you. God can't love you. You're lost. And and you have this horrible sense of lostness. Oh, and what I was describing was not the actual participation in sexual morality. It was the buildup, the beginning of the relationships. Like, oh, this person, this could, exactly. this is harmless. And then when exactly. there's a fall into sexual morality, like you can't believe you're like if you're any way of a believer, the accuser of the brethren comes in triple hard. And he's like, you're a piece of garbage. And you believe him because you acted in a way that in your mind a piece of garbage acts. And so what, what, what do you do? You got you to gotta hide that thing and hope it doesn't happen again uh, So in your mind. So, yeah, keep going. So I think what you just said is, is important and, and can be reiterated. The enemy never comes to us with our darkest moment as a lead-in. It's always progressive. 100. He never gets us with what we would never do. He gets us with where we might begin. And so for me, um, it was a sense of affirmation from somebody who shouldn't be the one that's affirming. Mm-hmm. And let me just say, so it's on the table and we know that it's out there and we'll keep talking about it over and over. There was an unhealthy uh, uh, pressure or weight placed on Michelle by me to be God in my life. Now, did I ever look at Michelle and say, you're my God? I never did. Never, ever. That would be totally wrong. And it would be absurd for me. And yet in my emotional makeup, I needed her to be affirmation. Instead of God affirming me, I needed her to affirm me. And if I was whole in Christ, which I understand now, and I can actually say to Michelle, I will not be destroyed if I lose you. Hmm. I don't want to lose you. I love the journey we're on. There's no one I would rather hang out with than her. But I'm whole in Christ. I don't have to have her for me to be whole and happy. She adds to that, but she's not the core of it. In that idea of your spouse being Lord of your life, you wouldn't have thought it in the front of your mind, but she was Lord of your life in that way. And sometimes if you're on the other side, like you're, you are the Lord of your spouse's life, you think you want that. But guess what? There's a ton of pressure that comes with that. There's a ton of uh, temptation to use that power for selfishness. And... Um, it actually makes your spouse unattractive to you when you have that kind of power. And so if you, like to the listener who thinks that they may have that kind of power over that spouse, that's, that's the kind of power that corrupts and turns your heart uh, and hardens you. Um, and so it's bad on both ways. Um, and, you know, I've told my story, Natalie was the Lord of my life. Uh, Michelle was the Lord of your life. Nothing good comes from any of that. No. So let's let's do this so we can move yeah, yeah, move yeah. forward. Um, the 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 truth was that from that 
uh, second year, I think, of of marriage to about Michelle's the one that's able to keep a time frame better than I can. But uh, till about year eight, six or eight, somewhere in there, um, there actually was was four different relationships that I found myself falling into or accepting or receiving where in essence what's happening is Michelle was placed like you just said I had placed Michelle as lord in my life and because she wasn't meeting that need I allowed someone else to try to take that spot or try to give them that spot and that never worked never never ever worked and so disappointment after disappointment after disappointment and then I begin creating this dark picture of myself that I begin to identify myself as the the person by the deeds and and so I'm a an adulterer I'm I'm never going to amount to anything and God can't bless me we actually lost a business during that time and and went through bankruptcy and I can remember the day when there's like been two or three days that I've experienced depression and I know for some people they're going to say well that's <laughs> crazy but I can identify them I'm a fairly upbeat person. And so there was a few days there when we lost our business. I was at home and we had no groceries. We had no money. And uh, I'll never forget, Michelle, I think, called my dad because she didn't know what to do for me. Hmm. She didn't know how to minister to me because she had never seen me in that state. And my dad came over. They lived a couple hours away. He came with a carload full of groceries and and spent some time with me. And, and amazingly, um, I, I rebounded and we were ready to dive into another business almost instantly. And God is just good. But in those, those dark moments. So I want to just say that in the next few minutes that we're talking about this story, Uh what most, most of your podcasts happens in a few weeks or months. Michelle and I years uh-huh. to assimilate and we're still assimilating. It, it's, it's, a, there was no community for us to turn to that could talk to us about what it means to be whole in Christ. Hmm. Our community was you ask him to forgive you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hmm. But you will never be a leader in the church. You will never be able to hold a position because we know your darkness. And so there's, you're forgiven, but you're placed in the category, sure. right? Labeled. And I, I just first praise God. Michelle never went there with me. She never had the picture that we wouldn't have a great home, that we wouldn't have awesome children. She went there believing that God would forgive and restore. Yeah. And she moved forward from that mindset. And it's why it worked. It is. It's, it's why it worked for us. When you, when you say that there were four different times or four different things or whatever, is, is during these years she's finding out about it and you're hat in hand, I'm done, I'm sorry, and then counseling and then, oh, it happened? Like, or is this like she finds out at the end or something? Yep, very end. So... Um, she had been talking to someone who knew us pretty well. 
And that person said, we just have this sense that something's going on. You need to ask me. And so when Michelle came home, I don't know if it took her a day or two or three or I don't know how long she thought about it, but there was a point where she just sat down with me and she said, I just sense that something's going on. Is everything okay? Are you being unfaithful? And uh, I'll be honest, I didn't tell her everything at first. The, the first moment that she asked me, like I said, there were two things going on. And the abstract fear, the absolute sense that life was over, um, caused me to, I just fed her a little. Which, honestly, as I think about it now, it's been a, a great tool for me in ministry. Because when I minister to couples who have this kind of secret, I let them know that as it comes out, they're not lying to you if they only tell you part. They're testing you. They're testing you to see if you're going to love them anyway. Hmm. If, if it's over, if, if you can handle that. And the way you respond to that first piece opens the door for the rest. Hmm. So if you want to know everything, buckle up, because here's where we're hmm. going. In fact, I've told this to parents many times. Um, Many parents think they've never offended their kids, and yet there's a rift in their family, and you can see it. They don't hang out together. They, they, the kids just avoid you know, intimate moments with their parents. And so I, I encourage the parents, take your son, take your daughter out to dinner, sit down at a table, and ask them. Tell them first, you know you've offended them in life. You know you have. You're not a perfect parent. But ask them to tell you how they've offended you. And when they tell you, don't, don't excuse it. Don't justify it. Accept it and say, I'm sorry. I never meant to hurt you like that. Please forgive me. And just know that the first one they throw out there is a test. Hmm. If you justify, if you try to excuse your behavior, and if you're not willing to accept it and then ask for forgiveness, that you'll never hear the rest. Right. But if you accept it, you take your role, and you take responsibility, you will reconcile the relationship with your children. If you're looking for a full breakdown of all these theological concepts that we talk about in this podcast, you could go to PVC Life on YouTube or just search Love Reality. And we did a full Wave 1, and yeah, it's uh, it's on the PVC Life's YouTube page, and it's free. So if you want a breakdown of what we're talking about, it's called Wave 1. Check it out on PVC's YouTube page, and I guarantee you'll be blessed. So when you're testing this out and you've experienced these years and probably the double mindedness because you, you've been loved, you love God, but your actions are saying this other thing. You've probably wrestled with that on your own when she calls it out and you're like, this is it, but I'm going to be free. How did this conversation go in in the subsequent weeks from there? (laughs) So, we, just to set the stage, we wouldn't understand what free was. Hmm. 
the relief I felt was a spiritual relief that I couldn't even describe or uh, I couldn't quantify at that point because we didn't know what freedom in Christ was or looked like. I just knew that the exposures gave me a sense of relief. There was a lifting of this burden of secrecy. Um, we'll get more to that sure. in a few minutes, but I, I can't tell you. Again, Michelle would be able to give you more of a time frame and how it actually played out. But I know that she accepted that first one. And then in that conversation or in conversations following, um, she would say, so is there more? And I would say, yes. And then I would reveal more. And like I said, I wish I could remember and give you exact details about how that went down. But ultimately, I shared with her all four experiences over the whole six or eight years or whatever it was. And I remember her coming to the point, because obviously as you're, you're kind of bleeding it out, um, she comes to the point where she goes, so is that all? And I knew I was at a point where I could say, yep, it's it. It's all out. You've got it all. Now what? You know, what are we going to do next? And Michelle reminded me uh, just recently that, uh, Within two weeks of this happening, this exposure happening, we either got scheduled or had been scheduled to go to a marriage encounter weekend. And uh, incredible tools. It, it, it literally changed our oh, lives. Wow. I mean, it, it was the tools we needed at the moment to survive. And I'll never forget, we were living in Iowa, but the one we went to was in Minnesota. And uh, in Hutch, actually, at the was Stan Super and Angie eight. still doing oh, it back yeah. then? It's Stan and Angie, yep, Stan and Angie. And uh, we went that week, and I'll never forget going home with a sense that we could, we can make it. This is going to work. We can make this, and and having tools that gave us confidence. And then we scheduled ourselves to go to another one fairly soon after that, and then. Uh, we began writing the talks, and then we did. I don't, I don't know, eight or ten of them. I don't want to get over the next. Few I don't want to get too far ahead without hearing this story because I heard it the other day, and I was like, "What did you go to counseling?" And you were done with the marriage, and she had to. Like you have to tell me this story. Was this before all of this had come out, or after, or? Okay, you got to tell. It was. It was during or at or near the end of the very first relationship. So it was maybe two years, mm -hmm. three years in. Um, and I think my parents sensed that something was really bad. And uh, uh, they had a, a person in the community that they felt was, was a great counselor. And so they brought this person to our place and we all sat down together and, um, yeah, what you're referring to is she she wanted to help us. And uh, as she just sensed, I wasn't having it. I wasn't about it. I'd lost interest, didn't want to go there. And I, in and the I marriage or just every, just the counseling session? In the marriage, especially the counseling, but in the marriage. And, and here's where I feel like I was at. Because at the point, I never really tried to diagnose why I was where I was. I just knew I was, but you try so hard to please or to be enough 
And that there's a point where you realize you can't and you give up. And so this story comes out of that giving up. Um, Michelle, Michelle was there. She was in. She was ready. She wanted to try. She still believed we could have a godly home and, and godly children. She was not wrong. But when this lady asked, she goes, so let's just pray that God will give us a restoration in your marriage. And I was like, I don't want it. And she goes, well, you don't want to pray about it? And I said, no, I don't want to pray for a godly marriage. And she goes, oh, well, then maybe you'll pray for a desire to have a godly marriage. And I said, no, I don't want it. And she went round and round. And Michelle, I felt like I drew a line and never did give in. Michelle said, I finally said yes. When she said that you would pray for a desire to have a desire to have a desire to have a godly marriage. Your heart was so like hard. That. Your heart was just completely hard because you felt like you weren't enough then. And what you just said is, I think, really important for people to know about themselves. Our heart is hardened by pain. We're hardened by rejection. We're hardened by abandonment. We're hardened by, and Satan knows that. Check this out. What God wants from us more than anything else is relationship. Hmm. What Satan wants to destroy more than anything else is our relationship with God. So if Satan can harden my heart so I can't be receiving of God's love, then Satan wins. And that's what he was doing through the my picture of what was happening in my life. It wasn't what Michelle was doing. It's what my picture was of my life. And because I felt like I wasn't good enough, because I felt like I couldn't measure up, and I was tired of trying not to measure up to Michelle, but to measure up to God, even though I didn't know it at that time, that's what had hardened my heart. Mm. And the hardness of my heart said, I don't want to try anymore. I'm done. Mm. It's, so that was early. but And so then all these years go by. when. Did you feel like your heart was softening up, yet you st- still were falling into this stuff? Or right at the end where you get, you get your stuff is on Front Street, and, and then, then it was different? You know, it's, it's interesting because over that next few years, things at church were like, I was teaching Sabbath school class, I was leading in the youth department, I was, uh, they had made me an elder at like 23 years old or 22 years old. And so there was this really uh, divided picture where I'm super involved at church and leading out and, you know, Mr. quote unquote spiritual at church. And then at home, Michelle's like totally disappointed in my spiritual leadership or and I, and I believe it's because my heart was divided in these relationships. She knew. I mean, there's, a, there's an unaware sense that we're not connected. She knew we weren't connected. And so she's, it's frustrating to her to see this double face thing going on. And, and it, it's, there was a sense of affirmation from those positions and those, those leadership things. So I could lead young people i could i could be an elder in the church and that sit on the board and that affirmation of my spiritual life 
is in direct opposition to the truth I know, but it's the life we're living. It's a, it's a double, a double mm-hmm. life, literally. So all of that fits into um, the whole story. Mm-hmm. When, when Michelle, when I finally get to that point where Michelle says, is that all? And I have emptied it all. There's no darkness withheld from her. She knows everything I've done. Um, we begin the restoration and we went to marriage encounter marriage encounter helped us with tools of communication so that we could actually begin. We felt like we had something we could move forward with Mm. and we begin a quest. So for us, that beginning few weeks wasn't necessarily the way the community describes it today. It's, it's not freedom in Christ. It's not, my God spoke to me and my sin was revealed. You know, the, the underlying sin, not the, my sins were revealed. They were exposed, but not the, the pride or the, the, the neediness or the, the dysfunctional need that I had inside. That wasn't revealed because we weren't walking that. Nobody was talking about that kind of stuff 30 years ago. I just want you to know, if, if you were in Sabbath school class 30 years ago and you said, well, God spoke to me this week and he said, they would all look at you like, do we need to call the ambulance now and have you carted off? Or, you know, we didn't talk about hearing God's voice. So was church helpful in any way? Or is that just a pl- like, help me with this? Because um, if you're not talking about the realest things in your life and you're just going to church just to hear the, about God, but it's compartmentalized and it's not really about you, it's just about this thing, then... And we're all this like, yeah, I mean, that's, so you, you're not even understanding the real problem. You're just like, well, the problem is I messed up with this person over here, but I should just try harder. Yeah. And, and that's true. But I will say this, even though I don't understand all of these, all the principles that I understand today or what God was about to lead us into, I didn't understand that. There was still a freedom from sin that I couldn't quantify because it had been exposed and I had experienced grace, not just grace from Michelle. Michelle is probably the single human that has shown me the most grace and the greatest picture of my Heavenly Father. And it was through her that I experienced forgiveness from Christ or saw what his forgiveness could look like. If she had, if she had, drawn a line and said, that's it, you're out, you've gone too far, then I think I would have also had that reflection on the heart of God. But because she showed such incredible grace, which I know God had prepared her to give me, that I had this, I had this same picture. So when you say, did church have a, any effect at all? Um, I don't think we don't want to beat it up did. the church, but I mean. <laughs> well, there was a group from the church that Michelle had been a part of for three years. Mm-hmm. And it was in that group that God had prepared. It was a group of women with kids that, that spent time every week together uh, learning the kind of stuff that we all know now. But they were on a path of discovery. And, and, it, and it created within Michelle a connection with God, a heart that could withstand the storm of the enemy 
And, and so does church help? It absolutely does. But could church be destructive? Absolutely. It can be. But it's dependent not on the structure or the institution. It's dependent on the people who are there. We need to find a church community that's on the move. Maybe they don't have it all right, but they're on the move. They're listening to the Spirit. They're moving in the Spirit. And they're learning from And they the know that they're the body of Christ. That they they know that they without know a doubt. Yeah, I am in Christ, Christ is in me, and us together, we're the body. Um, yeah. If we don't know that, and we're just I'll never forget, um, there was a, when I was little, I remember um, there was a, a person in our church who got pregnant, wasn't married, and, oh, the whispering that went on, you know, it's, oh, and... 50 years ago, they didn't know what else to do. It was whispering. It was sin. It was found out. Obviously, they're pregnant. And, and what do we do with, you know, that issue? And I, I can just say that I've been a part of a church where we had a, a young girl who, who ended up in the same situation. And I'm so proud of my church because they, they embraced her. They loved her. They threw her a baby shower and they supported her. And I'm like, that's what we need. We, what's the heart of God? The heart of God is that you're cast out and you're whispered about? Or is the heart of God that you're embraced and drawn in and loved on? And, and people have said to me, well, how do they know what they did was wrong? I'm like, don't worry. They know what they did was wrong. They're going to live with those consequences forever. But they got to know that they're loved and forgiven. This woman just told me this story this last weekend, and she said that when she was pregnant out of wedlock, the church made her come up to the front of the church and tell the whole church, and so that they w- they would shame her um, because they she had embarrassed the body. And I'm thinking, like, how would have Jesus handled that situation? We know how he would have. He would have probably bent down in the sand and written some stuff, and then he would have said. Uh, where are those who condemn who are condemning you? Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, of course, the church can be super painful if we're thinking about the church as this specific group of people that did this thing to me. And a lot of the times we do, and we're like, and that's the Adventist or that's the whatever church you're a part of. But the church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the head of the church, and the way Christ would handle it is how we handle it. Like that's how like we move as God as Jesus on this earth. That is our job um, because he's yeah. living in us. So, um, so you're, uh, you're in this place, you're getting restoration. You, she, how, how did you know she had forgiven you or were you, when she talked to me about that? I, it, there was no mystery. There was no uncovering. she, I could tell by the look in her eyes. I could tell by the way she treated me. Um, there was no, not that she never got angry. I mean, she did, and she had every right to. But I accepted it because it was a journey we were on, and I, I was sticking in this no matter what we were in. So a very different picture than when I said, I don't even what, want to pray changed? for the desire to was just your, Did God answer that prayer? Is that what changed? I think God... God had been working in my heart too, and I I wanted, I wanted yeah. Kim. I wanted our family. I wanted it to be whole. I guess 
there's a hungering and thirsting for righteousness that no matter how far we go, we finally realize the only one that can fill the void is God. And I couldn't imagine myself on a journey with him without Michelle. I just couldn't. Um, she, she didn't feel the same way, which doesn't matter. What I felt was we were, we were kindred spirits in that we both sought after God. So Richard, I'm sure many people that might hear this will, will identify with this, but in my darkest moments, when I would cry out to God, I would cry out with this voice, you know me, Mm -hmm. you know, my heart, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to be this. And, and I didn't realize that in those moments when I was crying that, that I was speaking truth. That's not who I am. Those things I'm doing is not who I am. And God does know that. And that's why he never gives up. That's why he's never far from us. He's just waiting for us to recognize the difference in identity that I'm either I'm a child or I'm going to act out as if I'm not when I am all the time. It's, and so for me, that was, I think what was driving it at that point was that inner desire to be whole. Hmm. I, I wanted that. And God knew that. And I'll be honest, I think Michelle sensed it. She sensed sincerity in me. She realized that I was ready. And I think the the willingness to come out. And I, I will just say, there were very few people who ever knew about any of this until now. Um, a few weeks ago, when Michelle and I shared this in church, was the first time well, we ever shared. Don't go there yet. Don't. We're, I want to get to that part. Don't, don't, go, there don't go there just yet. Okay. So this is happening. You have three children by the time that your marriage starts the restoration process. Am I correct? That you have yep. three children, and you end up going into ministry. How how long after this did you start? Did you feel like God saying, "This is what I want you to do"? Hmm. We started ministry in in uh, two thousand, and oh, so this all later. happened. This happened in like ninety. Mm, yeah, I'm trying to do the math. Here. 80, 88, 89, uh-huh. 90. If you want real time frames, well, well, you have, have to ask, ask Michelle. Sure. So, but that, it's about 10, 12 years between. In those 10, 12 years after this restoration and your marriage is, is changing, both of you are growing, did you really start to kind of get a grasp on righteousness by faith? What were you growing in? that you were able to look back in the rearview mirror at this thing and say, that was, that's no longer who I am, or that's not a part of my life anymore. So, uh, yes, if you, if you were older, you'd know the things we were reading, things like, um, Vendon's, Vendon's principles on, on righteousness by faith, Uh, a voice in Adventism that was talking about what it means to really walk with God and that God is not angry with us or vengeful. And those pictures, Michelle and I begin to look though outside the church. Um, 
the reason I was talking about us not telling our story or keeping this secret is in answer to your question regarding the whether the church was helpful or not. If the church doesn't know, they can't be damaging, but they also can't be helpful. And so those who knew were extremely helpful. Uh, I experienced grace from my church family, the ones who knew about it were extremely grace-oriented toward me. And they had no reason to be. They had no reason to be uh, grace-filled toward me. So God begins this journey. And I think the first thing he did was he gave us, um, and this is answering your question. It's just long, a long way around. But God gave us marriage encounter because we had tools now that I believe held us together. We're without those tools or without a bigger picture of what we have now we might have destroyed each other in the healing process. It's not like, bing, and it was all perfect. We still had to grow through it. I remember days, we we called it waving. Michelle would call me. She couldn't text because we didn't text back then, but she would call me at work and say, I'm waving, which meant for me, she's just being overwhelmed with negative thoughts or pictures about me and my past. And, and the enemy is trying to tell her that we can't win, that it can't be right. And so when she would say that to me, it was an appeal for me to pray. And I would just begin praying for her because I knew the enemy was trying to destroy us. Hmm. And we, we spent a lot of time in prayer together during those, those weeks. But Marriage Encounter gave us some tools. And then we started seeking stuff, just seeking. Michelle has always been... I keep referring to her because she's the one who reads. Mm-hmm. I finally came to the point where I said, just highlight the parts you think are important and I'll, I'll get those. But uh, we found, um, and not necessarily in this order, but we found a book called Freedom in Christ, uh, Victory Over the Darkness, Freedom in Christ. And then there's two or three other books written by Neil Anderson. I have them on my bed and, right uh, over here. I just yeah. I just read Freedom in Christ uh, this week. <laughs> yeah. He's the man. It's it is. It's good stuff. Dude, and I, he's I, so close. Like and in reading yes. it, it's so close. <laughs> like he goes like when I first started reading, I was just in the in the bookstore and I'm like, oh, okay. And I start I wonder what this is about. And I'm reading, I'm like, oh, this book came out in 2000 or something, or maybe a little before that. And I'm like, he's on it, but then the way he talks about Romans 6 isn't the way we would talk about Romans 6, but he's so close. He's like, it's all about identity, and it's so beautiful. So what you're describing is what we got. We're like, wait a minute. This is it. I mean, this is it. And you don't know the rest. So you're accepting or taking, absorbing what God is feeding you. And God was was feeding us. He was giving us stuff. We were finding stuff from all kinds of communities, and, and he's piece by piece, he's giving us some pictures. And I will say straight up, we never got it all. Right. That's a statement from today. Yeah. I believe, I believe truth is progressive. Oh, sure. People want to say truth is truth and it never changes. And I'm like, truth is progressive. Wherever God's got you today, you don't understand all there is to understand about God. And so there's more coming. I asked this pastor, this pastor and I were having 
he was having a hard time believing what I was saying about the gospel. And I said, do you really think that we're going to get to heaven? And God's going to be like, man, you guys were preaching it. It was a little too much. Like, I'm not as good as what you guys were saying, but it's good, but not as good. I'm like, you really think God's going to say that? And the guy didn't know how to answer. And he's like, he'll probably say that even though we messed up these things, that he still worked through us. Like trying to say that (laughs) what I was preaching is still heresy, but God can still work through us. But like what you're saying and what I believe is like, we're reading these, this stuff and like, oh, this is true. This is true. And I'm convinced that we're going to find out that he's even better than we think that he's, he's done more like who he is, is it's, it's amazing. It's incredible. We're not going to be disappointed when we find out, oh, Paul really didn't mean that. Like that really yeah. is, you know, that really is what it is. It's better, right? So we're yeah. we're there's more revelation of who God is as the years have gone by, and next year will be more than this year. <laughs> yep. One of the stories in Neil Anderson's book is a a young lady that walks into his office. I think she's 17 years old. She's gorgeous. She's wealthy. She drives a new convertible. She's popular. She's a great student and yet she's in the psychologist's office because she's broken and it's because she doesn't think she's good enough but that story i've used many times because it's not what we have or what we do it's where we're at in our heart and i think actually it's probably because it speaks to me i i had lots of friends i had things going the right direction i had a beautiful family i and yet I was empty inside and it wasn't it wasn't full. And God wants us to be full. Fullness doesn't come from the things on the external, it comes from the internal. So then the next one that we ran into, have you heard of Ed Smith and Theophostic? I haven't. So the Theophostic ministry is basically and, and again a piece that took us just a, a piece farther. Basically, it's that if you pray in the Spirit, the Spirit will speak to you the things that God wants you to know. Kind of like 1 Corinthians 2, that the Spirit... (laughs) Kind of like you you hear story after story of the miracles of people in death to life. They hear God's voice, and they're healed. True? And so we started listening to this Theophostic, and we started... Not only um, doing it, praying with each other, expecting to hear God's voice, but we did it with people that we ministered to. We would be like, you know, I can tell you the truth, but if you hear it from God, if you hear his voice, it'll change you. And so, yes, I think you might have, quote unquote, pride, but when God speaks to you, it's going to change your life. And so let's pray together and learn to hear God's voice. And so. That was something we kind of assimilated into our spiritual lives is that we can hear God's voice and that we can be free in Christ. So these things are coming from different communities and God's just kind of leading us. When you start ministry, had you understood that your main deal was with affirmation 
and the symptom of that affirmation deficit was uh, sexual immorality? Or did you still just, what did you understand about who you were and who you are in, in relationship to righteousness by faith as you start your ministry? I don't, I don't think I did. Uh, When we, honestly, I don't think I fully understood that until I heard Tyler say it out loud. Oh, wow. Because watch what, what, what happens is I was always affirmed. So my need for affirmation can't be a problem because I had affirmation. My family, I, I have always known I was loved. I always knew my church family loved me. I was taught God loves me. I I had the affirmation. And so the need of affirmation can't be the issue because I had it until Tyler spoke it. And then it was like, well, wait a minute. That's what I was feeling. That That's where I was at. And so I think I actually got that final piece or picture. I shouldn't say final, but that yeah. piece. When, when Tyler spoke it, I think I've attributed my affairs to sexual, sexual addiction. And, and I, I, even the stuff that happened to me or, or at camp, I never really put together until about a year or so ago that what, what happened there was actually a form of sexual abuse. And that was actually the, the beginning of this dark trend in my life. It, it was a piece that was added. So interestingly, Satan added it piece by piece. Sure. Right? So, so, And then in our journey, we, yeah, they say ahead. that trauma is not the actual thing. It's what you then believe and feel about yourself because of the thing. So because of this thing yeah. that happens, then there's trauma and then, did you own your sexual addiction? Like for me, when, whenever I was, that was the thing I was like, well, Alcoholics Anonymous, they own it. They're like, I'm an alcoholic. And then I was like, well, maybe I'm a, a sex addict or something. That's what, and then I owned it. And then that kind of setting my mind on that did not help, but that actually, if I ever fell, I'm like, well, I mean, it's who I am. Um, did, did that mindset, but you're like, well, I am this thing, but by God's grace, I'm going to figure it out. Or if that's what you thought about your affairs. I don't think I ever landed on that. Uh Um, I always kind of thought it could be a thing, but I also knew that, um, the relationships I was in was, was more than that. It wasn't simply sex. So, uh, and Michelle and I, things that we learned along after mm-hmm. had to do with the emotional relationships and and how to put up a guard in our lives so that it doesn't even begin. So there's many people I have run into or had interactions with, and they're like, well, I've never been unfaithful to my spouse. And at the same time, their best friend mm-hmm is someone of the opposite sex and and they're having a relationship that's not cool. It's, it's unfaithfulness. It is. And I'm not minimizing mine. I just, that's the reason I never fully attributed it to an addiction to, to sexual things. And yet 
that was always kind of hanging out there, but I don't think that's, it was the affirmation thing for me, but I didn't understand that till late. So when I say jump ahead, this is what I mean. You started your ministry, um, this is before I know you, knew you, and from everything that I've seen, and I think it's just true, your ministry has been a blessing to to everyone. Um, whether it was in Laporte, whether it's in Hutchinson, whether it's in Colorado, God has blessed you, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, it didn't seem you were operating from a deficit or a lack or a, I'm a this, but you were preaching righteousness by faith. You were preaching... <laughs> Um, you were preaching the gospel, and you were doing that for, you know, I want to ju- kind of jump ahead to 2018, but for almost 20 years, you're operating in this, and God's blessing you, correct? Yeah, without without fully understanding what I would understand today, yes, I was. Um, I believe God, it's from the grace that God gave me that I want to give to others the same grace. I want everyone to know the same God that I know. And so ministry began for us long before we became pastors. We were ministering to people in our communities before that, because God would give us opportunities. I was selling real estate in Hutchinson. And uh, I'll never forget this lady came to see me one day at my office and we she just wanted to sit down and visit. And I wasn't a pastor. We sat down in the conference room and she started to share with me this incredible depression that she was struggling with. And I've never known anyone that was at the point of depression that she was. She was receiving electroshock therapies. Yeah. And I think they can only do that like every 10 or 14 days. And when she would receive a, a treatment, she could function for about two or three days and then she would just find herself back in the couch until she could have the next treat and when she came to see me she said somebody had told her something that we had said or something maybe i'd spoken at arlington or whatever anyways uh she just said is there anything you know she's just looking for hope help hope sure something absolutely so i began to ask her questions and what you said a few minutes ago about trauma. Trauma isn't what does it, it's the lie we accept from the trauma. As a little girl, she told me a story about her faith leader, pastor, priest, whatever, you know what I'm saying? The faith leader spoke over her. You are a naughty little girl, and you will never amount to anything. And from that day until the day that, that I met her, she had lived under that lie, and it had just created a growing darkness in her life. Neil Anderson's freedom from yeah. or victory over the darkness yeah. and freedom in Christ. And then Theophostic, hearing God's voice. And I'm, I'm pulling those things together and I'm, I'm just saying, well, here's what we've experienced. And if you want to pray with me, let's see what God will speak to you. And she heard God's voice wow. and he told her that he loved her. Those experiences never go away from me. (laughs) It is the most incredible thing to watch God heal somebody. And and he will, always will, because that's what he's waiting for. And he needs us to step in and do that. During these, did guilt, condemnation, or shame ever land? 
did had did you I know you're saying and we're talking about this now that you had for you've forgotten a lot of stuff that you have to had to bring it up. Did the enemy ever attack you with that, that stuff or had that stuff already been settled in the 90s while you and your the, your marriage was being reconciled and restored? During ministry, did the enemy just say, oh, you got to keep that a secret still because that's still who you are? Or did you tell me about that? I would say my story didn't, and it wasn't the reason we kept it secret. Mm-hmm. But um, I absolutely lived with guilt and condemnation hmm. uh, for a long time. It was, I always carried, even though Michelle never said it, even though she never held it over me, even though she forgave me completely, and I believe I was forgiven by God, I felt a sense of guilt because I let someone down, because I hurt people. So when I say hurt people, it's not just my kids or my wife. It's not my parents. It's the other people involved in those relationships were wounded and hurt. And I knew that I had hurt, hurt, quote unquote, the cause of Christ. Because instead of being a godly man, sharing God's grace, I actually brought pain or brokenness to other people. And, and I, I, even though I knew I was forgiven, I wasn't free. I lived with condemnation, which is why I would speak um, negative things about myself. You know, people would say, and I struggle with it even, even a couple minutes ago when you said, we know your ministry has been a blessing to people. I want to say, well, no, and, you know, I want to slide it off. Because it's it's hard for me, it's hard for me to separate what I did from who I am. And I have to remind myself that God sees me as a son surrendered and eating at the table, not the prodigal who's still living with the pigs. And no matter... No matter who I might have wounded while I was out there wandering around, mm-hmm. I am whole. And so I still I still have to tell myself the truth. And I think you may, not everyone may agree with me, but I think we all still fall under some attack. And we have to wrestle with that attack and oh, say, for sure we do. or not wrestle with it, just <laughs> set it straight. You say this, but I know this. So this is who I am. Forget that. I'm not that anymore. The enemy's and I not going to be like, okay, he's got it. I'll leave him alone. <laughs> right. Right. No. And so I did, I did. In fact, I think maybe sometimes the message that I'm sharing is as much for me as it is for anyone that's there. And it's a reminder. I am free in Christ. I am child. He sees me as cherished and loved. I mean, he takes pleasure in my life. That that Wayne Morrison doesn't exist anymore. See, I think yeah. that's the thing that people have a hard time with. I was on the phone last late last week with a lady who um her husband had cheated on her for six years or something like that, and she found out and all this. And she's like, Well, my my husband keeps saying that he's new and that he's a different person and i believe him cuz he is acting different and and i 
but she was still struggling with, she was getting triggered by things. And I was like, uh, you want to know what else? She said, what? I was like, you're a different person from when this happened. She's like, I don't think about myself that way. Would it be a benefit if I do? And I said, well, then if you do, you would just be aligning your mind with reality because you are not that person. So like the Wayne Morrison from his early marriage, he's dead. Um, He was lost in his sins and transgressions. He was dead in his sins and transgressions, but he doesn't exist anymore. Like if you still believe like you are the total, the totality of your life lived up to this point, well then all of that stuff has to come in, you know, but that guy died and new Wayne was raised in, newness of life with Christ. His life is hidden in Christ with God. And so you can talk about old Wayne, and and people hear us talk about this stuff, and even someone who has known you for years and is hearing this story maybe for the first time is like, well, I didn't, like, I didn't know he was like that. Well, when you knew him, he wasn't. That guy was dead. If you met Wayne Morrison in 2003 at the Hutchinson Seventh-day Adventist Church while he was preaching, that guy, from who you're describing in the story, that guy was a new guy. That guy, maybe you didn't understand this whole thing, but it doesn't change the fact that old Wayne was dead, right? And so if if we take what he says seriously, and he says, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation, the old is gone, behold, the new has come, then nothing about old Wayne has anything to do with who you are right now, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yep. So some of the things or messages that I would speak are, were that, in that the things we do are not who we are. Mm -hmm. I remember um, probably 20, probably about 20 years ago, um, hearing that for the first time. And what I did was I I heard this story of somebody seeing a, a celebrity basically in a, or somebody who looked like a celebrity in an elevator mm-hmm. and they're like, Oh, you're right. And they identified the character. Or something. And this, yeah. And this, this identity thing began to take shape then, even though I didn't understand it all. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, one uh, illustration that I had that I used a lot was um, where we would, we would show up, let's say that we're, a football team since football just started we can do that and we have this this big game but when we show up to the game we show up at the wrong stadium and in in that i know i'm cutting it really short so it may not make sense to everybody but here's what happens the battle that we fight is in the spiritual it's in our identity who are we are we in christ mm-hmm. or are we these deeds? And we, we show up in the wrong stadium. We try to fight the wrong battle. We Mark. fight against the things I do wrong and try to get them straightened out when all Christ wants us to do is surrender our hearts. Yeah. And even though it seems really hard to surrender sometimes, that's all he asks. Just surrender. And the Spirit will fill us and take care of the battle. And we fight in the wrong realm all the time. That's what Paul was talking about. We have the wrong battle. Absolutely. So those things that I was saying, I, I'm, I'm not pointing them out because I had it. Right. I'm telling you I had pieces of it, but I wasn't, I didn't have it all rolled together yet. 
but it, and yet it's still God still used it to have an effect. Absolutely. What okay. one of I I got to tell you this because it's tell it. One of my really really great friends. We were moving, and the day we were moving, he was a part of that church family, and, and he came, and he was he was really distraught. Obviously, our relationship, while it was super close, I needed him to be focused more on God than on his pastor. Mm-hmm. And he would always come to me and say, Pastor, pray for me for this, pray for me for this. And I would say, well, why don't you pray yourself? And he goes, God doesn't answer me. God won't hear me. He won't answer my prayers. And he, he would tell me how he prayed for his mom when she was sick and she died anyway. He prayed in three or four specific circumstances and absolutely was not answered the way he thought he should have been answered. Mm-hmm. And so that afternoon, we're sitting on my, the front porch of our house. And I said, it's important for you to hear God's voice. You need to know God hears you and speaks to you. And I said, would you let me help you pray? And he was like, sure. I mean, he would do anything. He's he's awesome. Mm -hmm. Just an awesome guy. And so we prayed. And as we prayed, I said, so just ask God to reveal himself to you, to share with you what you need to hear in this moment. And we were silent for a moment or two. And then I said, so what did you see or hear, feel? What what did you experience? And he goes, all I saw was this, like, these colors. And I said, well, what do you mean by colors? And he said, it's like a TV screen as the station signing out at night. And they have the Mm -hmm. color bars across the screen. And I said, well, that's that's strange. Let's ask him what that's all about. And uh, he asked, and God just told him, took him to the story of Joseph Hmm. and he spoke to him that he was his favored son. Hmm. And it changed everything in his life. The colors were the coat. And so whenever I would talk to him, he's passed away now, but whenever I would talk to him after that, I would always ask him, are you wearing the coat today? Mercy, Because God wants to hear. He wants us to hear his voice so he can make us whole. Man, praise the Lord. When I first run into you folks as as more than just acquaintances, uh, I get to see you and your wife. And one of the main things that I didn't know I was going to tell the story, but I'm going to tell it. One of the main things that I knew about you is that you you guys knew that God was good. You knew he was love. There was no question. And uh, I was at Lauren's wedding and... Uh, it was this beautiful wedding that took a took a lot of work from Lauren and and I'm sure your wife and Alyssa and Katie and, and uh, we're at the reception and it's at it's at this beautiful beautifully uh, manicured backyard and everyone's having this amazing time. Anyway, it starts raining and you and your wife don't even run inside. You just pray right there and I'm and I took a photo of it and I was like, these people are different. These people are different. They know something. They they really believe that God is who he says he is. And uh, that, w- that just always impressed me. And we get to this point in 2018 where Tyler, I'm sure, comes to you 
and he starts talking about this stuff that's going on with him. Um, how did that hit you? Did the guilt, condemnation, and shame rear its head? And how did you start navigating? Because at this point, uh, if you haven't heard episode one, you should probably listen to it. But at this point, we don't know if Morgan and him are going to make it. Um, how serious did you take it? Talk to me about that experience. And then this revelation that Tyler starts talking about with you. There's, there's obviously lots of things that go through our mind. And I have to admit, um, the first thing that went through my mind was guilt and shame. We know about generational sin. Yeah. We understand, uh, I understand the influence of the father. And I, I had flashbacks to moments that I probably could have been more protective uh, of Tyler growing up. And I things that I thought he had experienced, didn't know for sure, but just assumed he might have experienced. And I wasn't, I didn't guard him more. And so, yeah. There was there was guilt and shame. In fact, I remember um, I remember sending a, a letter, pretty long letter, to Morgan and her mom and dad. And most of the letter was me uh, asking for forgiveness. Oh wow! Because I took responsibility for where Tyler was, and I, but I I prayed that they would, and I I asked them to please just hang in there. God can restore. And I knew he could because we had experienced it. We had been restored. And I knew that this could happen. But I also know and live under the idea that people have choice. You know, God can restore, but we have freedom of choice. So God can do anything, but I have freedom of choice. And so I was pleading with them just to hang in there. I wanted to take responsibility for all of it to let Tyler off the hook and uh, and move forward. But you asked me, I think you asked me this last summer when, when we were up in Wyoming, you asked me how I, my response to mm-hmm. Tyler or what I thought was going to happen for Tyler. And I didn't answer then because I, it kind of took me by surprise. I wasn't prepared, but I've thought about it a lot since then. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that I never gave up. I never gave up hope. And it's not because. I. It is absolutely because God never gives up on us. Mercy. And I know, I know my kids. I know that no matter what they find themselves in circumstantially, I know that they seek God's heart, and He's going to save them. Um, specifically with Tyler, uh, as a little boy. Uh, just to give you an idea of the, the personality, which you know him pretty well, mm-hmm. but at three years old, two years old, I can remember Tyler running across the backyard, and there's tons of trees out there, and he's just bolting across the backyard, running from somebody, looking over his shoulder. He turns around just in time to smack into a tree. <laughs> at first, smacks into the tree, it knocks him down on his butt, he stands up. He kind of shakes himself and starts running and laughing again. Children of God can run into trees. Mercy. But they know their father. And because they know their heavenly father, they can get up and shake it off and keep on going. And so while I know I've I know 
and we don't have enough time to talk about all of those stories, but I know I've caused pain to my children, or I haven't always been the the father I would love to be every time. I know the Heavenly Father has them in the palm of His hand, and He's going to get them through. And so I didn't know for sure if Morgan and Tyler would stay married or not, but I knew that God had them. And whatever He needed to do in those circumstances, He would get it. So Michelle and I, we prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed uh, because we knew He was the only one that could do it. And the enemy is attacking you at the same time. He is. Yeah, He's it. telling you this I'm, is your fault, and this and this yeah. is and what we've been talking about. Do we ever say that there isn't a place where there's godly sorrow that leads to repentance? Of course not. There is godly sorrow that leads to repentance, like feeling bad about the stuff that you felt bad about. Yeah, sure. The you know these other people in these relationships. Yeah, but the godly sorrow, the purpose is to lead us to change our mind. Yep. But there is a regret that leads to death. So continuing on in that, if the regret comes and it's 30 years later and it says, oh, this is happening because you messed up. That's the regret that leads to death, that the enemy, the accuser of the brethren, while your son is doing this thing, the enemy's just like, hey, guess what? If this da, 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 and if you don't see that for the lie that it is, and you say, yo, like I had godly sorrow and I have turned, and it's the kindness of God that has turned me from this thing. I've changed my mind. Do not, I will not go into regret that leads to death. Um, then then it's just gonna be, you're just gonna beat yourself up, and then we won't be able to help anybody. Then we're just a, a bunch of people that are just sitting around being like, we're all a bunch of losers. We're just the losers club. Um, but God bless you and love you. And you are able to, to pray for him and, um, and talk, <laughs> talk to this guy in a way that, I mean, when you, when you tell him your story, how did that, how did that hit him? Tell me about that. I don't remember. You'll have to ask him. <laughs> no, how did it hit when 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 you're when you're able to be honest with him and say, "Son, I can help you with this. There is a light." Um, was sharing that with him? Share, about that. Sharing it with him, I think. Um, as I think about some of the conversations we've had since then, I, I know that for him, it gave him great hope. Not that he didn't have any before. Because he's already been talking to Jonathan, and he's already been talking to Eddie, mm-hmm. and he's he's already starting that journey. In fact, just these these moments in time springboard us forward in our journey with Christ, mm-hmm. or drop us in the depths if we accept the lies. Mm-hmm. And and Tyler was springboarding, um, but knowing that, and here's what he said later: we need to tell this story. Because people need to know what God has done. Mercy. Not tell the story so people know how bad we were. We need to tell the story so people know how good God is. And, and he's right. Um, and, and so that's kind of what's encouraged us to be more open or start this 
process where we, we are more open about what's taking place. We've always talked about the way God has saved us. And I've never, I've never not told church family or been, I call it the pastor's confessional or the, the pulpit, I guess is the same thing. Mm-hmm. But where I share with people the things that I have, without giving detail, the way that I have failed. And so I will talk to them about the bad husband, Wayne. Mm-hmm. And I think if they would listen close between the lines, they all knew something was up right. because I didn't pull any punches. I just didn't give all the details. And Michelle and I just always had said we, we just wouldn't go there. But for the power of the gospel, yeah, I want people to know what God has done. So when he starts talking crazy to you about Romans chapter six, verse seven, yeah, how did that hit you? I mean, <laughs> talk to me about, they say that a, a, a heretic is somebody who tells the truth too early. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when he's telling you this stuff and you're, you're, you're an Adventist pastor and you know the gospel and he's saying, no, the gospel is actually, it's better. It's different. And he starts saying this. Talk to me about that whole journey. So because we've been on a journey and because I have this concept that truth is progressive, mm-hmm. we come into more and more understanding what truth is. I think Michelle and I might be more, more open, not totally open, mm-hmm. more open to these things as they start coming up. But as they, as it starts coming up, one of the things that we did was we invited Tyler to come to our church and do a love reality week. Mm-hmm. And he did. And uh, anyone who listens to the, his podcast or Morgan's podcast know that that was an interesting week. <laughs> but from the perspective of your question, Tyler was speaking these things. And I would be like, yes, 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 yes. Huh? And then, oh, yes, 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 yes. Wait a minute. Uh-huh. Because... It would be stuff that we're like totally on board with. And then he'd say something. I'd be like, well, wait, 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 wait. Because he'd use phrasing or, or a, 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 I want to say a cliche, but he would use a phrase that, that didn't make, didn't click for me. It, it didn't set. Well what were, what were some of those things that were new to your ears? Maybe it's hard well, to remember. Big one, the big one, I think for everyone is for anyone to say, I'm free from sin. That's, that concept is it's counter Christian in Christianity. In, yeah, in but our at the same time, world. in true Christianity, yeah. real followers of Christ, it's the core yeah. of our being. We are free from sin. If you can't say you're free from sin, then Jesus then didn't you're, do it. <laughs> you're denying the power of the cross. Right? Yeah. And and so that was one. That was one. So the one I think, Richard, the bottom line to your question is that here here's the picture that I got. We have always encouraged our kids to journey with Christ. Mm-hmm. And whatever that's gonna look like, they need to do it. And so to put that in the lens of a couple of my own experiences, there was a time when God spoke to me very clearly without going into the whole story that I should be excited about and pray for 
the fact that my kids would become more holy, more spiritual, closer to God than I was. That generation by generation, they would become more godly and understand more things. And so with that perspective, it doesn't feel great to have my kids <laughs> rushing ahead of me, right? And teaching me instead of me teaching them. But I kept reminding myself, I want them to do that. That's something I desire. And so, praise God, he was setting me up for the moments like we've experienced since 18. Well, why um, doesn't it feel great, though? Because of shame. It does. It does. But we want to be the well, parent. Back in the, if the lie on why it doesn't feel great is... Because if it, the lie is if you don't know something that somebody else does know, well, then you're less than they are. That's the exactly. lie we believe. Exactly. And yeah. if you believe that lie, then you can't learn anything from anybody because, well, it's like the guy who you're giving instruction to. Like if you have an associate pastor, a young associate pastor, and you say, hey, we're, we do things this way. And then you say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. No, no, yeah, I got it. I know, I know. Well, they can't learn anything. And the reason they're saying, I know, I know, I know, is they're defending against that feeling of being less than because they don't know. And the enemy puts that in our mind and says, if you don't know this thing about the Bible and you're a pastor, well, you're less than. And Harold always talks to me about this. He's like, man, pastors are the toughest to understand the gospel. And um, you've got that pushing up against you. And your son, Tyler, who's not theologically trained, who has just done this terrible thing, and now he's trying to talk to you about... I mean, so there's a bunch of lies that, if we let them land, can get weird with us, you know? Yeah. So one of the ways that God prepared me, and I'll never forget the day that I had this picture, as Tyler's sharing with me, and I'm like, "Mm, no, but you keep going, you'll come around. And all of a sudden, God gave me a picture of my dad. Hmm. My dad and I sitting in his house in Brainerd, and only a year or so before he passed away. And I'm going off. I mean, I'm just going off on freedom in Christ and theophostic and hearing God's voice. And I'm, God is showing me how my dad just let me go. Hmm. He just let me go. And I know there had to be moments because there was, there was a time for Michelle and I earlier when we, we threw off a lot of things that the church would have placed on us in terms of beliefs. We sort of threw it all aside and reassembled our own set of beliefs. And so we were doing things that I know would have caused my mom and dad concern. Mm -hmm. You know, I wouldn't say that they would have given up on us or they'd be condemning, but they would have been like, you know, we need to pray for them. They're in trouble. And and some of these beliefs that we were, uh, gathering together and and I would get excited and share it with him and righteousness by faith. And it's the form I had taken it on. You know, Mm -hmm. I was shared with my dad. My dad never said, never said a word, never argued with me. He'd just nod and say, yes, that's awesome. It's exciting. Um, And he just let me go. And I believe he let me go because he trusted me in God's hands. As long as I'm seeking God, I'm in the right path. I may not have it all figured out. I may even be on a wrong path once in a while. But God's got me. And there's no better place for us to have our kids than seeking after Christ. And so while I may be shaking my head inside saying, Tyler's getting pretty crazy out there. On the outside, I'm saying, keep going, because I believe God's got it. 
and he's going to reveal truth. And now I've fully surrendered <laughs> to the idea that I will always learn from my kids. They are way ahead of me, and I love it. Just so they don't leave me behind. I love that they bring me along. I love your stance towards your children and them learning, even though if we let a lie land, yeah, it'll feel it'll feel kind of it'll feel a little uncomfortable. Um what was the first thing that you you shifted on, like your paradigm shifted on because you saw something that, oh, maybe God isn't, maybe God did it all already, and our job is to believe that he did. Like, give me an example of your lens changing and the paradigm being shifted as your, as your, <laughs> Tyler's your son, and he's talking about it nonstop, and he's preaching out of your church, and, and all this stuff is going on. I have one, but I, I will also say there have been so many of those moments. Yeah. God is, yeah, it's been incredible. And and with all of our kids, yeah. um, you know, God has taught me huge lessons. So the one, the one with Tyler that jumps to my mind first is during the time between Tyler receiving freedom mm-hmm. in Christ. He's not who he was. He's in transformation. And Morgan is angry. I mean, just like angry. And I heard Jonathan, when we were in Hawaii, we're sitting in front of the church and doing the little deal we mm-hmm. did, the marriage talks. And Jonathan starts reciting how horrible Morgan was. And I start getting a little bit defensive. I'm like, you can't talk about my daughter-in-law like that. She's awesome. And Morgan's just sitting there. Yep. I was. Yep. I was. Yep. But she's just receiving it. I'm like, no. Anyways, it's in that moment where Tyler's there and Morgan's not yet. And, and Tyler calls me one day and he's, he says, dad, I don't have, I don't have any rights. And I'm like, you're right. She needs to give you your rights. And he's like, no, dad, I don't have any rights. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I can't expect anything. I'm called to love her with no expectation in return. And I'm like, wait a minute. Yes, you do. Don't throw yourself under the, we just, I was, I mean, my mind was going crazy, but that landed. And I have to say, if there's any one thing I talk about now, when I do pre-marriage counseling, it starts with. Yeah. We don't have rights. And if you're coming here expecting to be made whole by your spouse, we need to reverse this and start over because until you're whole in Christ, you will never be whole in your relationship. And and that was one that just I I had learned pieces of that in time where I could tell you early on, Michelle and I realized we can't be God for each other. But the total giving up of any expectation from anyone else, that was tough for me. Yeah, It was really hard. But it also has been one of the more freeing moments for me. So when he starts talking about, Pop, my addiction wasn't to LUST. My problem was affirmation. When that hits you and it lands on you, 
Tell me about that. I was, I was on it immediately. I was like, yep, yep. Makes total sense. I didn't fully understand immediately where it could come from. Um, that it's like a drug. That a little is not enough. A lot is not enough. It's, a, it's an empty hole that keeps sucking you in. Because, like you said, Tyler, so Michelle and I had three kids. We went through the restoration process. It's, it's six years between Alyssa and Tyler. And we're, we're actually thinking about adopting or foster to adopt. It's, it's kind of like starting over. We, we've renewed our vows. We're starting a new life. We're expecting incredible things and experiencing joy. And Michelle finds out she's pregnant. And so Tyler's born and he's, he's like the restoration child, so to speak. So he's got older siblings who think it's so cool to have a baby in the house. And so everything Tyler does, he gets praised for. I mean, oh, look, he swallowed. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> and everybody's taking great joy in this new baby. Mm-hmm. And, and so the affirmation began for him from all sides. It wasn't, you know, yeah. just one person. And so when he said affirmation, from the sin side, I saw it completely. From the other side, it didn't connect or make sense to me because I was like, well, he's always had affirmation. Why is he seeking more? You know, he's always, he's always been affirmed for who he was. Why seeking more? And then it clicked one day. And that's the same time that it, it sort of clicked for me that, that that was the core of my issues. In that Neil Anderson book, he talks about what was understood in the garden that what was lost after the fall. And one of them is affirmation. Like in the garden, like we were recon- not we weren't reconciled. We were with God. God was with us. He we walked with him in the cool of the day. And then the thing that was understood is now needed. It's like what is who we are is now, oh, we need this to be back after the fall. Mm-hmm. And affirmation is one of those. And so after the fall. Mankind wants to be enough. They want to be loved. They want to be this thing that was always given to them. It was it was who they were, and now it it's still who they are, but it is what it was lost. He came to save what was lost. And it's this this thing like you've always been this to me before the foundation of the world. It was lost in your mind, and so now you're searching. And it's this idea that we're searching after a thing that we've always that we've always had. Like you were always affirmed. Tyler was always affirmed. I was always affirmed. The enemy is great at lying, and so he lied, and now we're trying to get that thing that we have, but we just don't know that we have it. Um, so there's a there's a recurring theme for me recently. And uh, for those that have already heard me talk about this more than once, I'm not going to stop. <laughs> but, Let's go. Yeah. Genesis uh, 2, 25 says that Adam and Eve were both naked, uh-huh. but they were not ashamed. Right. And, and I know we can talk about the physical attributes of nakedness, but in the spiritual realm, we can talk about nakedness because in Revelation, 
16.15, it says, be careful that you're not caught without your robes, the robes of Christ's righteousness, which, by the way, is in red. So Christ is actually speaking that. Mm. Um, then you go back to Genesis. It's not just the physical nakedness or the spiritual nakedness, but in terms of what you just spoke, it's the emotional nakedness or vulnerability. They were not naked because they were whole emotionally in their relationship with God. And God filled it. God's the one who walked with them in the cool of the day. God's the one that was there every day. So then we go down to Genesis 3 and we find the serpent who gets them to listen to the why. Notice I didn't say eat the fruit because I don't think eating the fruit had anything to do with it. He, they listened to the lie. And the lie wasn't that they could eat the fruit. The lie was that they weren't whole in their relationship with God. There was something more than what they were experiencing with God. So they, they suddenly hide when God comes to find them. And they're hiding because, well, first God says, where are you? And they say, we hid because we were naked. And then God says, who told you? And that who told you question, for me, has just suddenly opened up. And the way it opens up is, the question isn't who told you you were naked. The question is, who told you that I would be angry because you disobeyed? Who told you that we wouldn't still be best friends? Who told you that now you'd have to do something to earn relationship back with me? Who told you that I wasn't going to be here for you, even though you loosed the, the serpent from the tree? And, and that verse with that weird word in it, Genesis 3.15, says that I will put enmity between you and the woman. And that's strife or, or striving. There's going to always be a, a battling suddenly changed for me because the picture was, oh, we're going to live under the penalty of sin now forever, right? Until Jesus comes. And it's not that anymore. What I saw was that Satan told them they were no longer whole or complete with God because they had disappointed him. And God says, who told you I was disappointed? You're still my children. Nothing you do is going to change my heart for you. And God is standing there, and if you, if you could picture the three of them, the serpent, Adam and Eve, and, the, and God. God understands the lie that was told, and he wants to make really sure everyone understands where the division is. The division is not between humanity and God. Hmm. The division is between the enemy and humanity. Hmm. He draws a line in the sand, and he says, here's where the division is. It's between the serpent and the woman, which we know represents all of God's children, mm-hmm. not between God and his children. Wow. It's between the enemy and his children. God is always on our side, has always been on our side, and will always be on our side. He's never been angry with us. He might not be happy with. His wrath may be against the one who raises up against us. But God has always been on our side. And we know that because before the foundation of the world was laid, he set in motion the plan of salvation. It was, there was a plan there. Right. He was always on our side. We know that um, we know 
We know that when Jesus died, he fulfilled or did for us everything that needed to be done. Check this one out. For God was so angry with us Mm -hmm. that he sent his son to die for us. That's not true. God loved us so much that he sent his son. He wants us to know the message over and over and over and over. And I wish I could be more articulate. I wish I could be. And that's why I just pray for the Spirit. No matter what I say, I pray the Spirit speaks to somebody's heart. Because we need to know God has always been on our side. He has never been against us. Can you believe your life, man? No. 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 You know the one the enemy brings? Is that it's too good and that something's going to happen. God, God is just so good to us. No, I can't believe it. No. Lost and found, man. Every day is incredible because God is awesome. Yeah. uh, You were dead and then he made you alive. All the things that you thought were lost in that moment have been given back to you with more. And in the moment of fear of, oh, what's going to happen with this or... God's like, no, check this out. Watch this. And uh, he's just... So I imagine you're preaching the same thing, that God is love, that he really loves you, but now you got some more firepower. Now it seems like there's more... (laughs) Would you say that you're preaching the same thing? But tell me that. Preaching the same thing with a way greater understanding. I mean, yeah, and having... When you when you change your lens and you start looking at Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians and Colossians, when you when you start looking at those through a different lens and you see it differently, it has so much more power. I mean, to preach the gospel the way Adventism has always accepted the gospel, it's good news. Solid. But it's always good news with a hook. Yeah. And in the in the new lens, there's no hook. It's just God's got this, and you're his. You want in or not? You want to experience joy and freedom and happiness? Or you want to live under the weight of feeling like you have to do something yourself? It's just, I mean, that's easy to talk about. It's easy to preach. I'm kind of a salesman. You know, I sold real estate. and um, When you think about a product that you want to place out there for people to desire or or want to grab hold of this gospel is easy and fun because when people get it yeah you watch the light in their eye and it's like oh i want more of that i'm i'm addicted to people hearing god's voice now being set free so if you could go back to the late 80s and you get to sit down in that counseling session with old wayne and you just get to pull him aside in the middle of this conversation that he's having with his wife and with this lady, and and you take him under your arm. What what would you tell this 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 lost kid who uh, is feeling pain? If it was possible to know all that lies ahead and have a conversation or start over, I would want to know God. I would want to know him the way I know him today, because knowing him would have changed everything. 
not knowing about him, but knowing that he's my friend, that, that he talks to me, that I have actually the ability to communicate with the God of the universe. I always used to say, man, if I could just have five minutes with God, where I get to ask a few questions, I get a few things answered, I could, I could handle the rest. And you can hear the, the fallacy in that, mm-hmm. is that I could handle it if I could just ask him a couple questions. When the truth is, in the secret place, I'm with him mm-hmm. anytime I want. He speaks, and I can have it. People say, Richard, that, well, I wouldn't change anything because I have to get to where I get, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we look at the healing and the, the, the progress that's made through the pain, and we say, I'm so glad I'm here. And the truth is, if that's the only path, we would take that path. Mm-hmm. But God never desired for us to suffer. He wants us to know him, and he will, he will lead us in a different journey. That doesn't mean circumstances won't happen, but I don't have to make the poor choices I made if I know God. So if I could start over, I would tell Wayne the kid, it's God. Mm. Because I can remember the night laying in bed and asking him to give me my wife. Give me Michelle. Turn her heart towards me instead of praying, prepare my heart for when she comes. Mm. You know? Make me ready. Um, I would talk to the father, Wayne, who obviously wasn't ready at 20 years old to be a dad. But I, I would talk to him and say, you've got to know God because you've got to be able to show your kids what it means mm. to know God. They've got to be built up in Christ. I don't think we have to live that. No. But I do think he's always there for us, no matter where we go. I, I often think, if I go, if I went back to my first year of marriage, like I think about, man, I could have, I could really love my wife. <laughs> I yeah. didn't, and I could really love her, um, and I wanted to love her, man. You wanted to yeah. love your wife. We we really wanted to, but we didn't know we could. We didn't. We didn't know we didn't. First of all, we thought we did didn't when we were being yeah. selfish. Um, yeah. But no, he's loved us so much, and uh, it's just beautiful. And your testimony, um, what's awesome to see is that the shame, the guilt, the condemnation that the accuser had for you, uh, while you may still feel it in some way, you know that it's not yours to wear, that the robe of righteousness is yours, and you're not here to wear both of them. And just to see that, um, man, it's just a blessing and a testimony because— because we got to tell people how good he is, right? Or else how are they going to know? They need to know. <laughs> they need to walk in the joy. Yeah. Yeah. I pray every day for an opportunity for someone to hear the truth, that they are loved and accepted. I love it, man. Thanks so much. Got me singing like glory. Yeah. It got me telling my story. Know that your love is pouring on me And love is pouring on me River flowing in and never ends More than life, more than me, more than just pretend And you can feel in freedom from within Free to fly, be the child that you always been yeah. This episode was brought to you by gospel-loving listeners just like yourself If you want to ensure more of these stories are heard by people And help build season three of the show and beyond We'd ask that you please give to our building fund that's helping support the future of the podcast. It takes equipment, 
and software and time and all that good stuff to make this an amazing listening experience for your ears. So we just ask that you help pay it forward like the person before you did to keep these amazing stories of God's transformative love rolling. You can go to lovereality.org slash give and choose death to life as the option to help us keep reaching more people and ensuring more episodes. Thank you so much, guys. Love y'all. Appreciate y'all. They got me singing like Singing like